Blog Talk Radio. Welcome back to Zion's <clears throat> Zion's Redemption Radio Network. I'm your host, <clears throat> Mark Lipton Walter. Today we're going to be covering pages 200 through 211 of the Four Crafts of the Devil's Kingdom. The title of this section is Kingcraft Extends to the Rocky Mountains. We're going to listen to the reader program first, which is about 23 minutes long. If you're not interested in listening to this part, fast forward about 25 minutes and uh, we'll get into the reader portion where I give reading and commentary. This first part is just for those who don't want to listen to uh, to my commentary and that's fine. You can also find links in the description of the podcast uh, to find a place where you can read this without uh, me reading it or the reader program. You can read it for yourself online for free. So let's get into this. This is Kingcraft Extends to the Rocky Mountains, page 200 to 211 of the Four Crafts. Kingcraft extends to the Rocky Mountains, pages 200 to 211 of the Four Crafts. Program for Monday, October the 31st, 2022, starting at 6 p.m. Mountain Time. To listen live or after the program, or to find the chat room guest call-in number, click link below, dub.com. The killing of Joseph Smith was not enough for the corrupt politicians. On January 1845, the state legislature appealed the Nova Charter, leaving the Mormon city without a secular government nor any military protection. One of those indicted for the murder of Joseph and Hiram was Senator Jacob C. Davies, but he never winced under the charges, although he, too, had played his part in the deed. Again, on October 29, 1845, Governor Ford sent a letter to the leaders in Novi in which he told them to leave Illinois rather than to stay there in a continual war and dash as he was too willing to offer them any protection. So in the dead cold of winter nearly 20,000 Mormons began to move westward beyond the boundaries of the United States. As they made their journey, however, the government interfered again. Another political edict demanded that 500 Mormon recruits help in fighting a war for them. If they refused, an army would be sent out to destroy the saints. And this was happening in America. The saints were being driven out of the United States by its politicians, Yet at the same time these kingcrafters were enlisting the able-bodied and much-needed Mormon men to go fight a war for the very country that was expelling them. Insanity seldom makes for common sense or logical reasoning. Brigham Young described the calling of this Mormon battalion in further detail. Previous to this, when we left Nauvoo, we knew that they were going to call upon us, 
and we were prepared for it in our faith and in our feelings. I knew then as well as I do now that the government would call for a battalion of men out of that part of Israel, to test our loyalty to the government. Thomas H. Benton, if I have been rightly informed, obtained the requisition to call for that battalion, and, in case of non-compliance with that requisition, to call on the militia of Missouri and Iowa and other states, if necessary, and to call volunteers from Illinois, from which state we had been driven, to destroy the camp of Israel. This same Mr. Benton said to the President of the United States, in the presence of some other persons, Sir, they are a pestilential race, and ought to become distinct. Journal of Discourses and when, in addition to all this, and while fleeing from our enemies, another test of fidelity and patriotism was contrived by them for our destruction, and acquiesced in by the government, through the agency of a distinguished politician, who evidently sought, and thought he had planned our overthrow and total annihilation, consisting of a requisition from the War Department, to furnish a battalion of 500 men to fight under the officers, and for them, in the war then existing with Mexico. I ask again, could we refrain from considering both people and government our most deadly foes? Our battalion went to the scene of action, not in easy berths on steamboats, nor with a few months' absence, but on foot over 2,000 miles across trackless deserts and barren plains, experiencing every degree of privation, hardship, and suffering during some two years' absence before they could rejoin their families. Thus was our deliverance again affected by the imposition of that all-wise being who can discern the end from the beginning, and overrule the wicked intentions of men to promote the advancement of his cause upon the earth. Thus were we saved from our enemies by complying with their, as hitherto, unjust and unparalleled exactions, again proving our loyalty to the government. Journal of Discourses The Mormon Battalion began its march in August 1846 from Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, with Lieutenant Colonel George Cook commanding. They marched over the Santa Fe Trail to New Mexico, Tucson, Arizona, and then on to Los Angeles. This march of over 2,000 miles was the longest infantry march in the history of the world. It was also an outstanding example of high morality, physical endurance, spiritual strength and patriotism. A week before the Saints arrived in the Salt Lake Valley, the Mormon battalion was disbanded in Los Angeles. The first of the men from the battalion arrived in Salt Lake in October 1847. At that time this area still belonged to Mexico, but it was soon after annexed as a territory of the United States. When the Mormons wanted to petition Congress for a territorial form of government, Colonel Thomas Kane advised them, you are better off without any government from the hands of Congress than with a territorial government. The political intrigues of government officers will be against you. You can govern yourselves better than they can govern you. You do not want corrupt political men from Washington strutting around you, with military epaulets and dress, who will speculate out of you all they can. They will also control the Indian Agency and the Land Agency, and will conflict with your calculations in great measure. You do not want two governments. You have a government now, alluding to the provisional state government of Deferred then in existence, which is firm and powerful, and you are under no obligation to the United States. If you have a state government, men may come along and say, I am judge, I am colonel, I am governor. You can whistle and ask no odds of them. But while you have a territorial government, you cannot do it. And then there are so many intrigues to make political parties among you. The first thing you know, 
A strong political party is rising in your midst, selfish and against your interests. Colonel Gaines' remarks were as true as though they had been spoken in prophecy. It was only a short time later that government officials brought their power, corruption, and unjust administration with them from Washington. One of the first appointed political officials was Judge Drummond, the gambler who had accepted this position in order to make money, saying, money is my god. He had deserted his wife and family in Illinois without means of support, and had picked up a harlot whom he passed off as his wife. He was disliked and distrusted by both Mormon and Gentile alike. Because of a mess he created by having a man beaten up and because of his exposure for that and other rotten deeds, he suddenly left the territory. But when Drummond returned to Washington, he falsely reported that the Mormons were in a state of rebellion, that territorial records had been destroyed, and that government officials had been murdered. These false charges received widespread coverage among political chiefs in Washington. On May 28, 1857, President Buchanan, without any investigation, ordered the United States Army, complete with federal appointees, to march to the Salt Lake Valley to suppress the rebellion and to replace Brigham Young and other Mormons in their political positions. Within 60 days a secret expedition was on its way west from Fort Leavenworth. It was at this time that Senator Stephen A. Douglas made his famous anti-Mormon speech, which ended his career as prophesied by Joseph Smith. Bancroft said this expeditionary force from Kansas had over 5,000 in personnel, and it is probable that no expedition was even dispatched by the United States better provisioned and equipped than was the Army of Utah. It was that flower of the American Army and was commanded by its elite. This Utah war was to cost the federal government over $40 million at that time in the nation's history when men and money could least be spared. It was just another example of political blundering, money pouring into pockets of leeches, an absolute waste and ash traditions which have unfortunately been continued to the present. A few men, like Genesis Sam Houston of Texas, tried to plead with Congress and the President to use common sense and recall the army and work out negotiations, but to no avail. It became known as Buchanan's blunder. On the other side of the fence stood Brigham Young's forces, though not nearly so well provisioned and equipped. Brigham was fully aware of the consequences the United States Army could have. Captain Van Liet conversed with Governor Young on the grave possibilities of such a war. Why, said he, the United States, with an overflowing treasury, can send out 10, 20, or 50,000 troops. I replied, I do not care anything about that. The captain then asked whether I had counted the cost. And I said, yes, for this people I have. But I cannot estimate it for the United States. For if they actually persist in their present tyrannical course, before they get through, they will want to let the job to subcontractors. They do not know the captain of the armies of Israel. And although they profess to believe in him, they do not realize that he is about to hold a controversy with them for their iniquity. Journal of discourses about five months earlier Brigham Young had declared, those whom the government sends here are a most miserable set. And, as a general thing, they do not know enough to tell a decent lie. But this is not altogether to be wondered at, for they are under the same difficulty as we are sometimes. It is hard for them to tell a man who has got reins in his head from one who is filled with pudding. The president and his cabinet know nothing about the characters whom they sent here, if they did. Many who have come here never would have been sent. 
If we cannot always discern the children of men, it is no wonder that they are blind, and cannot send men be capable of making a decent lie. If they have not already told every falsehood about us that they can invent, they will be mighty sorry when they think of it. For, if they could have told any more, they would have done so. They have made and told every lie that they knew how to, and if there is any blame on them for not lying more, it must be attributed to their ignorance. June 1857, Journal of Discourses 4, 348, Brigham was not going to surrender to such a force. He had no more confidence in them than he did with General Lucas in Missouri or with Governor Ford in Illinois. He was not going to quietly submit for being murdered as Joseph was. He and his people had had enough of their Christian pillaging, plundering, raping, robbing and outright murdering. Brigham said the army would find Judah a burned out wasteland and his people gone before he would submit to such rotten political forces again. When Elder John Taylor later spoke about this situation with Vice President Shiloh Colfax in 1869, he said, we had men in all the camps and knew what was intended. There was a continued boast among the men and officers, even before they left the Missouri River, of what they intended to do with that Mormons. The houses were picked out that certain persons were to inhabit. Farms, property, and women were to be distributed. Beauty and booty were their watchword. We were to have another grand Mormon conquest, and our houses, gardens, orchards, vineyards, fields, wives and daughters were to be the spoils. Commander-in-Chief of the Utah Militia, Daniel H. Wells, ordered the Mormon troops to take no life, but destroy their trains and stampede or drive away the animals at every opportunity, also to keep them from sleeping. Government and military officers soon watched their wagon trains of food, supplies and arms go up in smoke after Mormon leader, Lot Smith, rode into the army camp. Glancing over his shoulder as he, Lot Smith, rode into the campfire light, he discovered that his men apparently stretched out indefinitely, and trusting to the camps being deceived by this false appearance of numbers, he proceeded with his enterprise, notwithstanding the odds against him. Calling for the commander, a Mr. Dawson answered, to whom Major Smith explained his intention of burning the train, but informed him that the men might take from the wagons their private property if they would do so quickly. For God's sake, said Captain Dawson, don't burn the trains. It is for his sake that I'm going to burn them, replied Major Smith coolly. It was reported that 51 wagons and their contents were burned in the first engagement and 23 in the second. The Mormons had set up a defense that proved most formidable. According to Lot Smith, the positions occupied by our men in Echo Canyon would have enabled them to successfully defeat an army of a thousand times their force. At another army camp, Lot demanded the surrender of all their weapons. The camp obediently gave up their guns fearful of the consequences if they refused. Among the guns that were confiscated were those belonging to the famous Buffalo Bill Cody and Wild Bill Hickok. This embarrassing account was later described by Cody. See the Great West by Charles Nider, 221-226. Lot Smith continued his narrative, I told him, Captain Simpson, that I would give him a wagon loaded with provisions. You will give me two, I know it by your looks. I told them to hurry up and get their things out, and take their two wagons that we wanted to go on. Simpson begged me not to burn the train while he was inside, 
and said that it would ruin his reputation as a wagon master. I told him not to be squeamish, that the trains burned very nicely, I had seen them before, and that we hadn't time to be ceremonious. We then supplied ourselves with provisions, set the wagons afire and rode on about two miles from the stream to rest. In reality the wagon trains and supplies were burned to prevent a war, not to be a part of one. Besides all the arms, supplies and the wagons, there were 368,000 pounds of food destroyed. What a foolish way for the government to spend taxpayers' money, when a simple investigation into the false reports could have prevented the whole catastrophe. In addition to the other turns of fate against them, the United States troops watched the freezing snows and storms also hinder their march. Johnston's army was hopelessly trapped by heavy snow and temperatures that ranged from 15 to 44 degrees below zero. The entire route between Hamsford and Fort Bridger was lined with frozen carcasses of army cattle. Bailon Cree recorded the event. The day was memorable in the history of the expedition. Sleep poured down upon the column from morning until night. On the previous evening, 500 cattle had been stampeded by the Mormons, in consequence of which some trains were unable to move at all. After struggling along until nightfall, the regiment camped wherever they could find shelter under the bluffs or among willows. That night more than 500 animals perished from hunger and cold, and the next morning the camp was encircled by their carcasses, coated with a film of ice. The great General Albert Sidney Johnston had just marched into his Waterloo. He was defeated before the battle began. Starting out with that best of the U.S. Army and beaten by few Mormon upstarts who wouldn't even shed any blood, would have been the epitome of any general's humiliation and embarrassment. For Buchanan it was his great blunder. For the rest of the federal bureaucracy, it was just another bungle. And for the Mormons it was a message from their God. Little David had just conquered another Goliath for Israel. Brigham Young sent a message to Genesis Johnston, offering food, clothing and salt. He did send 800 pounds of salt, which at that time was selling for $7 a pint. Young said that it was a gift, but that if the good general would not enjoy placing himself under obligation to the Mormons, he could pay for it if he wished. Johnston was furious. He wanted nothing to do with lessening the tension between them. Governor. Coming and Colonel Kane arrived in Salt Lake City to discover all the government records still intact and no uprising even threatening. Genesis Johnston had wanted more troops, not peace, but now the game was up. Newspapers around the country began to tell the whole story, and Buchanan was in deep political mire. The president signed a proclamation of pardon for the people of the territory which was quite unnecessary because no one could figure out what wrong had been done in the first place. Representatives from Washington arrived in Utah to settle up all difficulties, but Johnston still wanted to engage the enemy and kept preparing for battle. However, he was called to return to the United States with his army to fight in the Civil War. He became a Southern general, fighting against the United States, and died early in the War of Wounds received at Schill. When the report was released that all the government records in Utah was still intact, there was a furor in Congress and press. Buchanan was under fire. The press had a heyday exposing to the nation the reports of graft, phony army contracts, and personal profiteering. Once Brigham Young had been termed the worst menace in the country, but now he was lauded for the stand he had taken. 
Even the New York Tribune gave their full support to the Mormons for what they did. It was Buchanan's turn to be on the receiving end of bad publicity and public criticism. Little did he know he would fulfill a sorrowful prophecy of Brigham Young's, you will see the old man go down to the grave in disgrace. He has cast off his political friends, and they cast him off as a thing of naught, and he will become a hiss and a byword. James Buchanan became one of the most despised of all the presidents. He died a lonely, wifeless, and childless Eric Luce. After the death of this 15th U.S. president, the New York Times editor wrote, the last five years must have been full of bitter days to James Buchanan. To live in silence, and retirement and obloquy, and dash his name the most detested of any name in America. To sit in his home, with the years rapidly bending him to the grave, and feel that, after so much power and honor, and above all, so many opportunities, he was the most unpopular of Americans. Perhaps Buchanan's last contribution to the Utah Saints, though somewhat indirect, was the fact that the Mormons were able to buy $3 million worth of property at auction for less than $100,000. This could be considered as partial retribution for the lands and property the Saints had lost in Missouri and Illinois. It was estimated by Colonel Kane that the value of the property of which the Mormons were dispossessed in Missouri is currently estimated at over $20 million. It is interesting to note that the foremost active Mormon leaders in the Utah War and Dash Brigham Young, Daniel H. Wells, Lott Smith, and Robert T. Burton and Dash were three years later enlisted in the service of the U.S. Cavalry to protect the mail and telegraph lines during the Civil War. Ironically, Jefferson Davies, John B. Floyd, and Albert Sidney Johnston, who previously had wanted to destroy the Utah Mormons, fought with the Southern rebels against the United States. In retrospect, the bloodless Utah War actually proved to be influential in the starting of the Civil War, and it set up the U.S. government for a conflict that would be much more costly. With the cream of the American army out in the West, involving its top military men and officers, supplies and equipment, it gave the South a reason to feel secure in starting a war with the North. The turnabout in the Utah War earned the Mormons a slight glimmer of respect, but it was short-lived. That tiny glow of light on the political horizon was a sunset rather than a sunrise. The kingcraftshires of the country again sat in their secret chambers plotting better ways for economic and political sovereignty over the Mormons. Since they had lost military, they would have to try a different approach. Okay, that was the reading portion of the program. Now I'll get into my reading and commentary. <clears throat> Kingcraft extends to the Rocky Mountains, page 200 through 211 of the Four Crafts. The killing of Joseph Smith was not enough for the corrupt politicians. On January 1845, the state legislature repealed the Nauvoo Charter, leaving the Mormon city without a secular government nor any military protection. One of those, <clears throat> one of those indicted for the murder of Joseph and Hiram was Senator Jacob C. Davis, but he never winced under the charges, although he too had played his part in the deed. Again, in October of 1845, Governor Ford sent a letter to the leaders in Nauvoo in which he told them to leave Illinois rather than to stay there in a continual war. 
as he wasn't too willing to offer any of them protection. So in the dead of dead in the dead cold of winter, nearly two thousand or twenty thousand Mormons began to move westward beyond the boundaries of the United States as they made their journey. However, the government interfered again. Another political edict demanded that 500 Mormon recruits help in fighting a war for them. If they refused, an army would be sent out to destroy the saints, and this was happening in America. Uh, Real quick, excuse me, I wish I didn't have so much problems talking today, but... It is what it is. Um, January of 1841, Jesus spoke to Joseph about building that temple in Nauvoo, which we have as section 124. Jesus told them if they were obedient, that he would fight their battles for them and they would not be removed from their place, which was Nauvoo. And now they're being removed just, what, five years later? Jesus told them if they did not do as he said, that that they would be rejected, the church would be rejected with, with their dead. Like, they didn't finish the Nauvoo Temple. The father never came to restore the fullness of the priesthood before Joseph Smith died. But Brigham Young claimed that Joseph Smith received or gave him the fullness of the priesthood in the Red Brick store. But the father never came to the temple because the temple wasn't finished before Joseph died. So Joseph did not give Brigham Young the fullness of the priesthood. That was a lie. And it contradicts the revelation given in January of 1841 where it says the Father has to give the fullness of the priesthood. Jesus is telling Joseph Smith the Most High must come and dwell therein that he might restore that which was lost unto you and that which he, not Jesus, but the Most High, the Father, where he can restore that which was lost unto you. It, that never happened. But what did happen is that they had a mass exodus out of out of Nauvoo and God did not protect them. Jesus said, if you do what I say, you will remain in your place and I will fight your battles for you. And that did not happen. It did not happen. Brigham didn't have the authority that he claimed that he had. But none of them did. In Nauvoo, the church was rejected with their dead, as Jesus Christ said would happen. And all they who hinder this work, or drag their feet, which is what did happen... That's how they hindered the work. That And they would steal the wood coming down from Wisconsin on the Mississippi River that was meant to build the Nauvoo Temple to build things like Masonic Lodges, other people's homes and stores. Brigham Young was using that wood to build onto his mansion. 
This is how they hindered the work. And Jesus said, all they who hinder this work would be cursed the third and fourth generation. Which is interesting because when Joseph Smith in 1843 spoke, Lyman White wrote his words down and Lyman White recorded Joseph Smith as saying the church has been rejected with their dead. That was in 1843. If you take one generation of the children walking around in the wilderness after Moses, Scripture says that 40 years is one generation. Four generations would be 160 years till the curse would be lifted which just so happened to be 2003, which just so happened to be the very year that I was taken up in the flesh and I saw the Father and the Son face to face and received the fullness of the priesthood under the hands of the Father in his own temple upon Mount Vashel. The church was rejected in Nauvoo. None of the split-offs or break-offs out of Nauvoo had any authority. Because they were rejected. And Jesus, he said, if you do what I say, I'll fight your battles for you, and you shall not be removed out of your place, which was Nauvoo. But what happened? I'll let you be the, the judge, but, you know, with this information, how can you accept Brigham Young as having any authority? See, Jesus said that the church would be cursed not only condemned, they were already under condemnation, but there would be a curse and a rejection. And that's exactly what happened. Continuing on, the saints were being driven out of the United States by its politicians, yet at the same time, these king crafters were enlisting the able-bodied and much-needed Mormon men to go fight a war for the very country that was expelling them. Insanity seldom makes for common sense or logical reasoning. Brigham Young described the calling of this Mormon battalion in further detail, quote, Previous to this, when we left Nauvoo, we knew that they were going to call upon us and we were prepared, or prepared for it. In our faith and in our feelings, I knew then, as well as I know now, that the government would call for a battalion of men out of that part of Israel to test our loyalty to the government. Thomas H. Benton, if I have been rightly informed, obtained the requisition to call for that battalion and in case of non-compliance with the requisition 
to call on the militia of Missouri and Iowa and other states, if necessary, to call volunteers from Illinois and from which state we have been driven to destroy the camp of Israel. This same Mr. Benton said the President of the United States in the presence of some other persons, Sir, they are a pestilent race and ought to become extinct. Journal of Discourses, Volume 10, page 106 through 107. And when the addition to all this, and while fleeing from our enemies, another test of fidelity, fidelity and patriotism, patriotism was con, con, contra, uh, sorry, contrived by them for our destruction and acquiesced in by the government. Although the agency of a distinguished politician who evidently sought and thought he had planned our overthrow and total annihilation, consisting of a requisition from the War Department to furnish a battalion of 500 men to fight under their officers and for them in the war when existing then existing with Mexico. I asked again, could I could we refrain from considering both people and government our most deadly foes? Our battalion went to the scene of action not in easy berth on steamboats with a few months absence, but on foot over 2,000 miles across trackless deserts and barren plains, experiencing every degree of privation, hardship, and suffering during some two years' absence before they could rejoin their families. Thus was our deliverance again affected by the interposition of that all-wise being who can discern the end from the beginning and overrule the wicked intentions of men to promote the advancement of his cause upon the earth. Thus we were stayed, we were saved from our enemies by complying with their as hitherto unjust and unparalleled expectations. Again, proving our loyalty to the government. End quote, Journal of Discourses, Volume 2, page 174, 173 and 174. The, Mal- the Mormon Battalion began its march on August in August of 1846 from Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, with Lieutenant Colonel George Cook commanding. They marched over the Santa Fe Trail to New Mexico, Tucson, Arizona, and went on to Los Angeles. This march of over 2,000 miles was the longest infantry march in the history of the world. It was also an outstanding example of high morality, physical endorment, endurance, 
special spiritual strength and patriotism. A week before the saints arrived in the Salt Lake Valley, the Mormon battalion was disbanded in Los Angeles. The first of the men from the battalion revived I'm sorry, um, arrived in Salt Lake City on October in October of 1847. At that time, between 1847 and 1850, this area still belonged to Mexico, but it was soon after annexed as a territory of the United States. When the Mormons wanted to petition Congress for a territorial form of government, Colonel Thomas Kane advised them, quote, you are better off without any government from the hands of Congress than with the territorial government. The, politi- the pol- political intrigues of government Officers will be against you. You can govern yourselves better than they can govern you. You don't want corrupt political men from Washington strutting around you with military epaulets and dress who will spec speculate out of you all they can, they will also control the Indian agency and the land agency and will conflict with your calculations in great measure. You do not want two governments. You have a government now alluding to the provisional state sorry alluding to the provisional state government of Deseret then in existence which is firm and powerful and you are no, you are under no obligation to the United States if you have a state government Men may come along and say, I am judge, I am uh, colonel, I am governor. You can whistle and ask your gods, I'm sorry, you can whistle and ask no others of them, but while you have a territorial government, speaking of the nation of Deseret, I think. You cannot do it. And there, and then there are so many intrigue, intrigues to make political parties among you. The first thing you know, a strong political por- party is rising in your midst, selfish and against your interests. And that comes from correlated history of the church. Volume 3, page 432. Colonel Kane's remarks were as true as though they had been spoken in prophecy. 
It was only a short time later that the government officials brought their power, corruption, and unjust administration from them, with them from Washington. One of the first appointed political officers was Judge Drummond, a gambler who had accepted this position in order to make money, saying money is my God. Bancroft's History of Utah, page 490. He has deserted his family, his wife, and his wife in Illinois without means of support and had picked up a harlot whom he passed off as, as his wife. He was disliked and distrusted by both Mormon and Gentiles alike. Because of a mess he created by having a man beaten up, and because of his exposure for that and other rotten deeds, he suddenly left the territory. But when Drummond returned to Washington, he falsely reported that the Mormons were in a state of rebellion, that territorial records had been destroyed, and that government officials had been murdered. These false charges received widespread coverage among the political chiefs in Washington. On May 28, 1857, President Buchanan, without any investigation, ordered the United States Army, complete with federal appointees, to march to Salt Lake Valley to suppress the rebellion and replace Brigham Young and other Mormons in their political positions. Within 60 days, a secret expedition was on its way west from Fort Leavenworth. It was at this time that the Senator Senator Stephen A. Douglas made his famous anti-Mormon speech, which ended his career as prophesied by Joseph Smith. Bancroft said this expedition expeditionary force from Kansas had over 5,000 personnel and it is probable that no expedition was even dispatched by the United States better provisioned and equipped than than was the Army of Utah. That's from Bancroft's History, page 404. It was the flower of the American army and was commanded by its elite. This Utah war was to cost the federal government over $40 million at a time when the nation's history, when men, uh, when men and money could be least spared. Bancroft's History of Utah, page 538. It was just another example of political blundering, money pouring into the pockets of of leeches, and absolute waste. Traditions which have unfortunately been continued to the present. A few men, like General Sam Houston of Texas, tried to plead with Congress 
and the president to use common sense and recall the army and work out negotiations, but to no avail. It became known as the the Buchanan blunder. On the other side of the fence stood Brigham Young's forces, though not nearly so well provisioned and equipped. Brigham Young was well fully aware of the consequences of the United States Army or what they could have. Captain Van Villette conversed with Governor Young on the grave possibilities of such a war. Quote, why, said he, the United States, with an overflowing treasury, can send out 10, 20, or 50,000 troops. I replied, I do not care anything about that. The captain then asked whether I had counted the cost, and I said, yes, for this people I have, but I cannot estimate it for the United States. For if they actually persist in their present tyrannical course, before they get through, they will want to let the job to subcontractors. They do not know the captain of the armies of Israel, and although they profess to believe in him, they do not realize that he has about that he is about to hold a controversy with them for their iniquity. October 1857, Journal of Discourses, Volume 5, page 331. We're on page 205 if you're reading along. About five months earlier, Brigham Young had declared, quote, Those whom the government sends here are a most miserable set, and as a general thing, they do not know enough to tell a decent lie. But this is not altogether to be wondered at, for they are under the same difficulty as we are sometimes. It is hard for them to tell a man who has got brains in his head from one who is filled with pudding. The president and his cabinet know nothing about the characters whom they send here, and if they did, many of the many who have come here never would have been sent. If we cannot always discern the children of men, it is no wonder that they are blind and cannot send men here capable of making a decent lie. If they have not already told every falsehood about us that they can invent, they will be mighty sorry when they think for it. For if they could have told any more, they would have done so. When they made and told every lie that they knew how to and if there is any blame for on them for not lying more, it must be attributed to their ignorance. June 1857, Journal of Discourses, Volume 4, page 348. Brigham was not going to surrender to such a force. He had no more confidence in them 
than he did General Lucas in Missouri or Governor Ford in Illinois. He was not going to quietly submit to being murdered as Joseph Smith was. He and his people had had enough to, of the Christian pillaging, plundering, raping, robbing, and outright murdering. Brigham Young said the army would find Utah a burned-out wasteland and, the, and his people gone before he would submit to such political rotten forces again. When Elder John Taylor later spoke about the situation with the Vice President Colfax in 1869, he said, quote, We had men in all the camps and knew what was intended. There was a continued boast among the men and officers even before they left the Missouri River of what they intended to do to the Mormons. The houses were picked out that certain persons were to inhabit. Farms, property, and women were to be distributed. Beauty and booty was their watchword. We were to have another grand Mormon conquest and our houses, gardens, orchards, vineyards, fields, wives, and daughters were to be the spoils. Correlated History of the Church, Volume 4, page 259. Commander-in-Chief of the Utah Militia, Daniel H. Wells, ordered the Mormon troops to take no life but to destroy their trains and stampede or drive away their animals at every opportunity, also to keep them from sleeping. Correlated History of the Church, Volume 4, page 280. Government and military officers soon watched their wagon trains for food, supplies, and arms go up in smoke after Mormon leaders Mormon leader Lot Smith rode into their camp, glancing over his shoulder as he, Lot Smith, rode into the campfire light, he discovered that that his men apparently stretched out indefinitely and trusting to the camps being deceived by his false appearance of numbers, he proceeded with his enterprise, notwithstanding the odds against him. Calling for the commander, a Mr. Dawson answered to whom Major Smith explained his intentions of burning the train, but informed him that the man might take from his wagons their private property if they would do so quickly, for God's sake, said Captain Dawson, don't burn the trains. It is for his sake that I am going to burn them, replied Major Smith coolly. Correlated History of the Church, Volume 4, page 282. It was reported that 51 wagons of their contents were burned in the first engagement and 23 in the second. The Mormons had set up a defense that proved most formidable. According to Lot Smith, the positions occupied by our men in Echo Canyon would have enabled them to successfully defeat an army of a thousand times their force, contributor Volume 3, 
page 270. At another army camp, Lot commanded the surrender of all their weapons. The The camp openly gave up their guns, fearful of the consequences if they refused. Among the guns that were confiscated were those belonging to the fa- uh, to famous Buffalo Bill Cody and Wild Bill Hickok. This embarrassing account was later described by Cody. See The Great West by Charles Nieder, page 221 to 226. Lot Smith continued his narrative. I told him speaking of Captain Simpson, that I would give him a wagon loaded with provisions. You will give me two, I know it, by the looks. I told them to hurry up and get their things out and to take two wagons for the want, for we wanted to go on. Simpson begged me not to burn the train while he was in sight and said that it would ruin his reputation as a wagon master. I told him not to be squeamish, that the trains burned every uh, burned very nicely. I had seen them before, and that they hadn't time to be ceremonious. When we supplied ourselves with provisions, set the wagons afire, and rode on about two miles from the stream to the rest. Contributor, Volume 4, page uh, 28. In reality, the wagon trains and supplies were burned to prevent a war not to be part of one. Besides all of the arms, supplies, and wagons, there were 368,000 pounds of food destroyed. What a foolish way for the government to spend taxpayers' money when a simple investigation into the false reports could have prevented the whole catastrophe. In addition to the other turns of fate against them, the United States troops watched the freezing snows and storms also hinder their march. Johnston's army was hopelessly trapped by heavy snow and temperatures the range from 15 to 44 degrees below zero. The entire route between Ham's Fort and Fort Bridger was lined with with frozen carcasses of army cattle. Wee Creer recorded the event, and we're on page 208 if you're reading along. The day was memorable in the history of the expedition. Sleep poured down sleet poured down upon the column from morning until night. From the previous evening, 500 cattle had been stampeded by the Mormons, in consequences of which some trains were unable to move at all. After struggling along until nightfall, the regiment camped wherever they could find shelter under the bluffs or among the willows. At night, more than 500 animals perished from hunger and cold, and the next morning the camp was encircled by their carcasses coated with the film of ice. End quote, Utah and the Nation, page 74. The great General Albert Sidney Johnston had just marched into his Waterloo 
He was defeated before the battle began, starting out with the best of the United States military, our United States Army, and beaten by a few Mormons upstarts who wouldn't even shed any blood, would have been the epitome of the general's hum humiliation and embarrassment. For Buchanan, it was his great blunder. For the rest of the federal bureaucracy, it was just another bungle. And for the Mormons, it was a message from their God. Da little David had just conquered another Goliath for Israel. Brigham Young sent a message to General Johnston offering food, clothing, and salt. He did send 800 pounds of salt, which at the time was selling for $7 a pint. Young said that it was a gift, but that if the good general would not enjoy placing himself under obligation to the Mormons, he could pay for it as he wished. Johnson was furious. He wanted nothing to do with lessening the tension between them. Governor Cumming and Colonel Kane arrived in Salt Lake City to discover all the government records still intact and no uprising even threatening. General Johnston had wanted more troops, but not peace, but now the game was up. Newspapers around the country began to tell the story, the whole story, and Buchanan was in deep political mire. The president signed a proclamation of pardon for the people of the territory, which was quite unnecessary because no one could figure out what wrong had been done in the first place. Representatives from Washington arrived in Utah to settle up all the difficulties, but Johnston still wanted to engage the enemy and kept preparing for battle. However, he was called to return to the United States with his army to fight in the Civil War. He became a Southern general fighting against the United States and died early in the War of Wounds received at Shiloh. When the report was released that all the government records in Utah were still intact, there was a furor in Congress and President Buchanan was under fire. The press had a heyday exposing to the nation the reports of graft, phony army contracts, and personal profiteering. Once Brigham Young had been termed the worst menace in the country, but now he was lauded for the stand he had even taken. But now he was lauded for the stand he had taken. Even the, the New York Tribune gave their full support for the Mormons for what they did. It was Buchanan's turn to be on the receiving end of bad publicity and public criticism. Little did he know he could he would fulfill a sorrowful prophecy of Brigham Young's. Quote, you will see the old man go down in the grave in disgrace. He was cast off of this political off of he was I don't know, I'm having such a hard time reading today. It's like trying to push something out of my voice box. It doesn't want to go. 
you will see the old man go down in the gra- in the gra- or to the grave in disgrace. He has cast off his political friends. They cast him off, off as the as a thing of naught, and he will become a hiss and a byword. Juvenile Instructor, Volume 19, page 43. James Buchanan became one of the most despised of all the presidents. He died a lonely, wifeless, and childless recluse. After the death of his 15th, of this 15th president, the New York Times editor wrote, The last five years must have been full of bitter days for James Buchanan. To live in silence and retirement and obloquy. I don't know what that means. Let me see here. Define. Obloquy is a noun, strong public criticism or verbal abuse. Oh, cool. His name, the most detested of any name in America, to sit in his home with the years rapidly bending to him, or bending him to the grave, and feel that after so much power and honor, above and above all, so many opportunities, he was the most unpopular of Americans. And this is as quoted in the Millennial Star which was a church publication, volume 28, page 57. Perhaps Buchanan's last contribution to the United or to the Utah Saints, though somewhat indirect, was the fact that the Mormons were able to buy $3 million worth of property at auction for less than $100,000. This could be considered a partial retribution retribution for the lands and property that the Saints had lost in Missouri and Illinois. It was estimated that Colonel Kane, by Colonel Kane, that the value of the property of which the Mormons were disposed in Missouri is currently estimated at over $20 million. Mormonism, Americanism, and Politics, page 562. It is interesting to note that the four most active Mormon leaders in the Utah War were Brigham Young, Daniel H. Wells, Lot Smith, and Robert T. Burton, and were were three years later, in 1862, enlisted in the service of the U.S. Cavalry to protect the mail telegraph lines during the Civil War. Ironically, Jefferson Davis, John B. Floyd, and Albert Sidney Sidney Johnston, who had previously had wanted to destroy the Utah Mormons, fought in the Southern Rebel against the United States. In retrospect, the bloodless Utah War actually proved to be influential on the starting of the Civil War and it set up the U.S. government for a conflict that would be much more costly, with the cream of the American army out in the West involving its top military men and officers, supplies, and equipment. It gave the South a reason to feel secure in starting the war with the North. The turnabout in the Utah War earned the Mormons a a slight glimmer of respect, but it was short-lived. 
that tiny glow of light on the political horizon was a sunset rather than a sunrise. So we're on page 211, which is the last page. I'm going to open up the phone lines now if people want to call in for their uh, theological questions on the uh, unrestoration theology, um, Mormonism, whatever, um, political, not political, but um, religious uh, thoughts, statements, any kind of uh, any kind of thing like that. Uh, questions for me, statements that they'd like my response to. Uh, the guest call-in line is now opened. Uh, the phone number is 917-889-8827. And uh, we do go live Monday, Wednesday, and Friday for the time being at 6 p.m. Um, and then we just finish whenever we're finished. So we can go up to 8 p.m. Um, if we have people calling in, if we need to, we can go all the way to 9 p.m. in overdrive, but that's not live streaming. Anyway, continuing on. So we're on page 211, and we have one page left. So once again, the guest call-in number is 917-889-8827. And if you do call in and you do want me to open your line up and unmute it, please press 1, and I'll see that you are signaling me to have your line opened. All right. The king crafters of the country again sat in their secret chambers plotting better ways for economic and political sovereignty over the Mormons. Since they had lost military, they would have to try a different approach. Okay, so that was the end. That was the end of that. So the next section that we're going to be covering is called Under the the Color of Law, which is on page 212. And then after that, on Friday, we will be covering the conclusion of the book, which I believe starts on page 240. Let me just see real quick. Oh, no, it's uh, page 229. So that's where we'll start on uh, Friday, is page 229, and on uh, Wednesday we'll we'll start on page 212, and then uh, the book goes to page 240. So we'll be done with this book this week. Uh, Once again, you can find everything that we've covered today to read for yourself in the description of the program. And also, you can read the full book for free to read online, uh, also in the description of the program. I try to put the uh, the links to the books that I'm reading and uh, to put the, uh, the text that I'm going to be covering that day in each of my programs. Uh, it's at uh, Tumblr at uh, Fund- Fundamentally Mormon. At Tumblr, a Tumblr. So, anyway, and then, uh, like I said, we go live Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, 
starting at 6 p.m. and we can go to 9 p.m. if we have callers. Uh, anybody wants to call in. So, all right. Well, the phone lines are now open. Thank you for listening. Take care, everyone. Here we go. Okay. So today is October 31st, 2022. It's Halloween. So everybody be careful out there if you're driving around. Drive extra slow for those kids that don't have fully developed frontal cortexes. <laughs> I'm driving through Huntington in my semi-truck right now. And uh, I was stopped at the only light in the whole county. And I was stopped there for a while because it was red. And as soon as it turned, nobody went through the intersection, like nobody crossed the crosswalks, nothing. Light turns green, and about seven, well, maybe five kids and and an adult ran across the street in front of me in another semi-truck. Light turns green, they just ran. So please be careful out there. You know, if you hit them in the crosswalk, even though they ran in front of you, and even though it's green, uh, you're going to have some issues. Now, I have a dash cam on my truck for these kind of situations. So, anyways, like I said, yeah, I'm driving right now. Um, the chat room is open at blogtalkradio.com forward slash fundamentally Mormon. Um, the guest call-in number is 917-889-8827. Uh, I did want to answer some questions that I did receive uh, earlier today, but they don't have to do with what I was talking about. But that's fine, because I'm here to answer theological and, yes, even political questions. Um, you know, any any questions or comments, anybody who wants to come on the show and ask them, uh, that's perfectly fine with me. Uh, if you want to use the chat room, that's fine too. Although it's hard for me to read the chat room when I'm driving. But uh, if I see somebody has, uh, has said something, I'll zoom into the chat so I can just look to get the general idea of what the question or comment is. So, um, all right. Well, here we go on to crazy land again, since I am supposedly a delusional person. Um, somebody was telling me that uh, to be an apostle, you have to be an eyewitness of the resurrected Savior. And I said, well, I'm an eyewitness of the Father who I saw in the flesh, and he laid his physical hands upon my head, because I am the one mighty and strong. Although it drives me a little bit nuts. Everybody says the one mighty and strong, and it's not the because there are 15 for each earth. But uh, I was shown in 2013, um, in January of 2013, so almost 10 years ago, the father came to me as I was very upset because I was being persecuted by the stake president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, uh, Montpelier, Vermont Stake, which stake I lived in. 
we lived in upstate New Hampshire, but anyway, this man had heard about me. I had just moved into his stake, and he wanted to ask me some questions about certain things. And uh, he asked me about those things, and I told him about my experiences, not all of them, but some of them. And this was in, like, December of 2012. And um, he asked me to sustain Thomas Monson. I said, no, I don't, I don't sustain him as a prophecier and revelator, but I do sustain him as the president of the church. And that made him very upset. And I said, look, I have never had a spiritual confirmation that Thomas Monson is a prophet, seer, or a revelator. And I am not going to support him or sustain him as being a prophet, seer, and revelator if I've never had a confirmation. In fact, um, several years before that, in 2004 or five. Um, God told me, okay, so I went to music in the spoken word, which is something that I used to do all the time. And then I would go over to uh, to church at the Joseph Smith Memorial Building, which is where um, Gordon B. Hinckley and Dallin H. Oaks and Thomas Monson and a bunch of different uh, leaders in the church, they all went to church there. Not all of them, but I'd see Al Pompey over there all the time. Anyway, but uh, this particular day, I was walking out of the tabernacle at Temple Square, and it was, it was right after. Um, it was right after <clears throat> music and the spoken word. If you don't know what that is, Google it. Whatever. And. Um, the Spirit told me, God told me, follow those people. There were some people walking by. There was actually a bunch of people walking by, but there was a specific group of people that God told me to follow. And so I followed them. We went out of the north gate of Temple Square. We went across the street, and we went over to the east southeast side of the conference center, and I followed these people with them as a group into the conference center. We went down through uh, a back way, some stairwells or whatever. I just followed them. And I walked with them all the way to the front of the conference center. Okay, I had no idea, but there was a regional conference that was about to take place. And the people that I was following, they were the stake pres- or some of the stake president's family for the region. So a regional conference is where there is a, a bunch of stakes in a region. Hold on. Let me just – I usually break up going around this corner. I don't know if you guys are going to hear me through it or not. But Okay. I'm actually in Castledale right now. And like I said, be very careful about uh, kids and idiot adults walking around. I swear they don't have a brain in their head. Well, kids, I expect that. But uh, but the adults, like, I guess I should expect that too. Anyway, so it's 35 here in Castle, though. I'm going to be doing 25 
because uh, I don't really feel like sitting around filling out police reports and being sad that I hit some kid or some idiot adult because they're walking through the road. Anyway, back to my story. So I uh, I followed these people down, and we uh, followed them all the way down to the front of the conference center, and we walked into a roped-off area, which was directly in front of the pulpit in the conference center. And I was just kind of pleased because I had no idea what was going on. No idea. I still at that point had no idea what was going on. I just knew that God told me to follow these people, so I did. So anyway, um, they walked one way, and I walked over, and I sat like four or five rows back right by the base of the teleprompter in front center of in front of the pulpit. And um, and that's where I sat. And I sat by myself. Like I was in a suit and tie and everything. You know, I looked like I belonged there. But I was all by myself. And I was sitting there about one or two seats um, east of the base of the teleprompter that was in the middle. So I'm sitting there, and I begin to see these people file in, and there's Thomas Monson, and there's uh, different individuals that are going to be speaking. And I was like, well, this is all interesting, you know. Anyway, so I'm I'm enjoying this. I'm like, thank you for, like, letting me know about this, Heavenly Father. You know, like, this is great. And so I like Thomas Monson, but he used to drive me nuts because he would tell all these tear-jerking stories all the time. And everybody would be like, oh, he's such a wonderful man. Oh, I feel this spirit so strong, even though he's, like, not speaking about, like, anything that has to do with Zion's redemption or, like, you know, oh, yeah, when I was younger, uh, I, I was a bishop of a ward, and there was widows in the ward, and I used to make cookies for them. Like, just stupid stories. Like, it's nice. Endure, endearing, endearing, not enduring. I endured, but um, I didn't. I didn't really like care for him as much as I cared for uh, for Gordon B. Hinckley, who I personally knew. But I liked him. I mean, there wasn't anything wrong with him, other than it would just irritate me that there would be these manipulative, emotional stories, and it bothered me, you know. So I'm sitting there, and I'm like just happy to be there anyway. And Thomas Monson gets up and he's speaking and right in the middle of his talk, he stops talking and he stares at me directly, like just staring at me for like, I don't know, an uncomfortable four, five, six seconds. And then he says, you know, I've been through many experiences in this building. One time there was a man sitting in the whatever row I was in and whatever seat I was in. And that man had a heart attack during my talk. And then he just stared at me for another uncomfortable, like, eight or nine seconds. And then I don't even know what he said after that. I guess he started talking whatever was on the teleprompter. I can't remember. But, like, that was my first, like, what? What is he talking about? Okay, so that was interesting. I left. I'm like, okay, this is interesting. And I was wondering at the time, Heavenly Father, is this man really a prophet, seer, and revelator? 
you know, and this is after my experience of Heavenly Father, and I, I know because of my experience with Heavenly Father and the Spirit in, 2000, or in 1995 that I would be the last prophet because that's what the Father told me, which is weird because at the time I was not active in the LDS church. I was actually a member of a Baptist church in Ogden, Utah at that time. And I had not yet converted to the Restoration. I thought Joseph Smith was an imposter. I thought the angel Moroni was just Satan come as an angel of light. And I was very anti-Mormon in my little Southern Baptist congregation when they told us all about how horrible the Mormons were all the time. And, um, you know, I wasn't interested in anything to do with Mormonism other than to like tell people, you know, hey, you you need to accept Jesus Christ and get saved. You you can't trust in these these cultists, you know. <laughs> anyway, so I'm in. The, uh, so during that same period of my life, I was taken up in '95, and I was taken to the Salt Lake Temple, and and I was taken by Jesus Christ into the presence of the Father. And I heard him say that I would be the last prophet before the return of Jesus Christ. So I knew that that was something that was in my future, but I didn't know how that was going to happen. So, you know, I just, I don't even know. Anyway, so um, so I'm sitting there and I'm like, like Thomas Monson really irritates me because of how smooth his words are. He's never like rebuking the saints to repent. Uh, you know, he doesn't talk about Zion's redemption or any of the the laws of God that the saints are required to redeem Zion. He just gives these these ridiculous tear jerking stories that uh, have nothing to do with anything, right? So anyway, he's sitting there and he's looking at me, and I'm looking at him, and I'm thinking, Are you really a prophet, seer, and revelator? So, okay, so that was weird, and that happened. Well, like two weeks later, I felt like I wanted to go see my grandma and grandpa up in Clifton, Idaho. So I packed my car for an overnight trip. I head up there on Saturday, and I was planning to go to church with them on Sunday. And Sunday comes down morning, and I'm getting dressed ready for church, and Grandma says, oh, didn't you know? It's regional conference. We're not going today. I was like, oh, I want to go to regional conference. <laughs> Where is it at? They said, it's in Logan, and it's at this place, and it starts at this time. And I said, great. I love you guys, but I want to go to regional conference because this sounds like a lot of fun to me. <laughs> so I go in, and I park <clears throat> up in Logan where the conference is, and uh, the Spirit says again, the Father, because it's the Father that speaks to me most of the time. The Father tells me, follow those people. I said, okay, I'll follow those people. It's going to happen again. This time I actually understood what was going on. You know, so I follow these people, and we go up this certain way, and we come in into the building this certain way, which was not normal. And I sat, oh, how do you explain this? Okay, so the building that I was in was like usually a basketball arena, I think. But this day it was filled up with 
you know, a bunch of people for this regional conference. And the podium, the speaker's facing towards the east, and behind him is where the choir is sitting. And there's two stairways, one on either side of the choir, on the north side and on the south side of the choir. And then on the uh, on the other side of that, there's like, uh, you know, a whole bunch of seats on the north side and a whole bunch of seats on the south side. Well, I sat down on the first row just to the behind the stage on the north side of this uh, – of where the choir was sitting behind, actually behind the podium, but just to the north of it. So if you're looking from the congregation and you're looking at the speaker, I would have been on the right-hand side of Thomas Monson, who was sitting there only a couple of rows in front of me, but to the side, right? And this is like two weeks after this weird experience with Thomas Monson at the conference center in Salt Lake City, Utah, but now we're in Logan, Utah. And I'm sitting there, and he, and like Von J. Featherstone, awesome. I love that man. I love his talks, and he was one of the speakers there that day. But so was Thomas Monson, who had no idea that I was sitting behind him. Well, not completely off to the side, but I was like right there, like 10, 15 feet from him. And at the time, he wasn't president of the church. He was the first counselor in the first presidency. But he would become the president of the church not too long after that. Anyway, so I'm sitting there. And he goes up and he gives this talk, and he's like the the person that um, is like wrapping up the conference. So he gave the last talk, right? So he turns around after his talk, and he walks back to a seat, and he stops, and he sees me sitting there looking at him. And he just stood there staring at me for probably about 10 seconds. And I just smiled at him. And he went and sat down, and they had the closing song and the closing prayer, and and everybody's coming up to, like, shake Thomas Monson's hand. How are you doing? I love you so much. All the things that, you know, people do when they're worshiping a man as an idol, which is not what I understood at the time, but what I understand now is going on in the LDS church. So anyway, um, he's, like, standing there in front of the podium, just shaking people's hands, facing towards the north, shaking people's hands, and just, he kept on looking at me like he was worried. I I guess he should have been, like, he had no idea that I'm the one mighty and strong, but at that time, I didn't know that either. I had seen the father face to face by that time. And I... I knew because the father had informed me in 1995 that I would be the final prophet, which is interesting because I just posted a bunch of stuff on my Facebook and in different groups and stuff that talks about the final prophet from the Dead Sea Scrolls. And guess what? I fit the description that the prophet at Qumran, who wrote in the Dead Sea Scrolls, talked about as the man who would be the 
one greater than John the Baptist who would prepare the way for the King Messiah. And, and this man would be the final prophet. Okay, they never used Jesus Christ as the King Messiah, but, but um, I, it's just interesting, right? I fit the description. Like the physical description that he saw in his vision uh, or visions and the uh, the description of how this individual would be in his life and, and that he would be moving all the time. He'd prophesy on the run, that he would be a traveler. Like just there's a whole – there's a very detailed stuff in uh, Q4 or Cave 4 of the Dead Sea Scrolls about the final prophet. And I fit the description. Of course, I didn't know that at the time. Hold on. So I'm driving through Fenn right now, and a semi-truck just pulled. Oh, where'd that guy come from? You know what drives me nuts about semi-truck drivers, especially in Emory County and Carbon County and Sevier County? Like, they just speed all the time. It doesn't matter. It's Halloween, and there's kids walking around. By the way, I'm actually driving through Farron right now. But but anyway, <laughs> side note, tangent, whatever. But anyway, so um, so I had this, this experience where I'm sitting there two times within two weeks, and I always want to say there's a third time, but I cannot for the life of me remember the third time. So I'm just going to say it was two, even though I know I've said in the past that there was three. And I know, I feel like there was three, but I just can't remember. Like, I've met Thomas Monson before that as well. And I met him after that. But those are the, the two times that I can talk about where God was preparing me to receive a message. And so I'm standing there, and I'm thinking, should I go up and say hi to him? No, he's he's got a lot of people around him. So I'm thinking, oh well, I'll just I'll just stand here, I guess. And I'm asking God, is Thomas Monson really a prophet, seer, and revelator? There goes Jeffrey. Hey Jeffrey, if you're listening. I just passed you. That's my friend. He's a truck driver. And I know what truck he drives because it's different than other trucks. <laughs> but anyway, so um, I was asking Heavenly Father, as I was standing there looking at Thomas Monson, is he really a prophet, seer, and revelator? And Heavenly Father said, no. He is only a steward over the church who will lead the church until he whose right it is to rule comes. Did not understand what that meant at the time. I thought maybe Jesus Christ would come and the second coming. I had no idea. But guess who found out who he was in uh, before Thomas Monson died? Hi. When Jesus, or when the Father said, until he whose right it is to rule comes, 
he was talking about me. In 2003, when I stood, or when I kneeled before the Father, I was given the fullness of the priesthood. I was sealed up unto the Father himself, becoming a link on the earth. Connecting the hearts of the children on the earth to the fathers in heaven. If you know what the law of adoption is, you'll know what that means. And hold on, I am going through Farron Dugway, and I'm not sure if you're going to hear this or if I'm going to break up. I'm just going to get to the top of this. checking my phone to make sure that my call didn't drop and everything is going swimmingly. Okay, we're at the top of Farron Dugway. All right, so so I had received all of the keys to the kingdom and to the priesthood when I saw the Father face to face in 2003. Which I thought meant, okay, well, I've been given these keys because I'm going to be the last prophet and I'll be a president of the LDS church. And, like, they're going to pick me for, like, they'll get revelation because I didn't realize, I didn't know as much as then as I know now about the rejection of the saints in Nauvoo and all of that. In fact, I didn't even know about the one mighty and strong until the later part of 2012, even though I'd read those scriptures. It just, it never occurred to me. (laughs) It goes, my friend Jay. You know, I'm really going to miss these guys out here. I I drive a truck that is more unique than, than any other truck. Everybody knows who I am, and I got these red lights in the truck. If you know my TikTok, I'm Red Pill Mormon on TikTok. And it's because most of the time I have these videos that I make while I'm driving my truck. And it's at night, and I've got these red lights that shine on me, so I'm Red Pill Mormon, right? Anyway. (laughs) Excuse me. Um, Okay, real quick. Guest calling number is 917-889-8827. The phone lines are open. And the chat room is open at blogtalkradio.com forward slash fundamentally Mormon. Anyway, so I'm like sitting there or standing there, and I know that these things have been told to me, but I don't know how it's all going to work out. But, but the Father told me he is not a prophet, seer, and revelator. He is a steward over the church. Later, I would find out in 2013 when when I was being excommunicated for my experiences for my 1995 experience which by the way I wrote President Hinckley at God's command a very detailed account of my experience I sent that to him on a Monday. On a Thursday, 
in the evening, I get a call from my stake president, and he says, hey, somebody wants to meet you from church headquarters. They have asked me to ask you if you will be in the sacrament room 30 minutes before the beginning of sacrament so that this person can meet you. I said, okay, I'll be there. Now, my girlfriend at the time was just livid that we had to go to my ward. I don't know. She was, she became my wife for a short time, four months to the day. We were married June 27th. Oh, wait, no. Let me think. Yeah, June 27th. I was sterile and I couldn't get her pregnant and all she wanted to do was be a mother and you know what I did I didn't say anything at all because I didn't care I she broke my heart and I loved her but she like I would try to like like okay well let's go to counseling and try to figure out like you know, try to work through this. I mean, I love you and I'm married to you. And I would go to counseling by myself. I would go to classes, marital classes by myself. She refused. And, you know, to this day, she lives in Provo, Utah. She is 40. Forty-two, I think. To this day, she still lives in a roommate situation, does not have a house of her own. When her dad died, she couldn't even afford to go out to be at the funeral. And she has no kids. She never married again. And before we got married, um, as we were walking along the sidewalk, talking, God told me that she would not be in my life for very long, but that she would be in my life later, but didn't give me like how that's going to happen or why, if she's going to be my wife again, or because we're sealed, we were sealed in the Salt Lake, I know, the Bountiful Temple. You know, she's still sealed to me as my wife. So technically I'm sealed to two women, two living women. But anyway, so, um, so she's with me and she's giving me hell. She doesn't want to go. And I'm like, look, My stake president said somebody from church headquarters wants to meet me. I'm going to go whether you like it or not. And, like, she was just arguing with me all the way, (coughs) all the way to church. And I'm getting ready to just give up and just be like, I can't deal with you. I 
or we'll go do what you want because you're such a rabid freaking heart or I don't even know. I'm, mm, I don't know the words to you. I don't want to say the B word because I'm trying to keep this friendly fam, uh, family friendly, but it was pretty ridiculous. So anyway, so we're driving along. We're almost to church and my car died. While we were driving, my car just, it was a Pontiac 6000. It was an old rust bucket. And it just died. No, actually, I think this was a a New Yorker. I think that my New York. I oh, I love my New Yorker. Anyway, it was like an '89 New Yorker, flush, beautiful car, beautiful car. But it died, and we're like rolling along. It's completely stalled out, no power steering. I'm like, like okay, if I just. And I had enough momentum to roll into the church parking lot. And where we parked, there was only one place to park. And as we pulled in, I had enough momentum where I barely rolled into the parking spot. And I just put it in park because I didn't even need to hit my brakes. That's that's how perfect that the momentum was just to roll into that one spot that was the only one available. So I said, Oh, we're here. So, you know, 45 minutes early. Cause so I could be in the sacrament 30 minutes early. So she finally decides and I'll go in, you know, and she's just fighting. She fought with me so much. I don't know why I loved her so much or why I love her still. I do care about her. I wish that she could find a man to have children with because of all she ever wanted. And she actually lied and said that I was sterile. And that's why she wanted to get an annulment. And I was like, whatever. So uh, my wife, Kim, and I have had, had three kids. We have five, but the two older ones were with her ex. So I'm a stepdad. I don't consider myself a stepdad, though. They were uh, six years old and three years old when I became their dad. And their dad is in prison now. So there's no contact between these kids and the bio dad. But anyway, so um, my wife and I have three living children and she's been pregnant nine times altogether. So we've had um two miscarriages and one live birth, Emma, who died thirteen hours after she was born. And then uh what they call a blighted omen, I guess. I don't know I don't know how to explain that. I think I'm saying it right. Anyway, obviously I can get my wife pregnant. It was just a lie. And you know what? She's been cursed. Rebecca, you are cursed. You want to break the curse? Like, make it right. But she doesn't have any kids, right? But anyway, so um, so we're sitting there in the sacrament meeting room, and there's like hardly anybody in the sacrament room. There was a people doing a couple things, but like it was just, and we're just sitting there on the last row, and I hear the door open in the foyer, can't see who it is, 
but the spirit got really, really strong, like burning fire, burning in the bosom strong, really strong. And I look over towards the door, and there's L. Tom Perry come to talk to me from church headquarters. We had a really good conversation. It was funny because my ex, who was my girlfriend at the time, she, and this is 2004, she says, uh, who was that? And I'm all, I sent L. Tom Perry. And she couldn't see who it was. She's all, no, it isn't. <coughs> Which is funny. So anyway, but so L. Tom Perry is asking me these questions and we're talking. And um, he says, he says, well, God is the one that chooses his prophets, because we sure don't. He slaps me on the back with this big, cheesy grin on his face. Like, I always thought he looked like a car salesman. Like, he's a big man. Big old boy, right? Big old man. Anyway, so um, I'm like, okay, well, I don't know what that means, but he does. So anyway, he goes and sits down at the stand. Anyway, so he sits there and he, he talks callings and about some stuff at the end of the meeting. And then during the uh, the ending music of the meeting, he walks out, gets in his car and drives away. And then after the closing prayer, everybody who had sat there, they were filing in. All these singles ward kids were all filing in. And I'm sitting there talking to Al Palm Perry and they're like, what? <laughs> What's going on? And um, and they said, uh, they come up to me, what was L. Tom Perry talking to you about? I said, just some personal stuff. You know, well, L. Tom Perry told me to go to my stake president's office. And the, the singles ward was in the stake building. So the president's offices were just down a hallway. So anyway, I go down there right after uh, L. Tom Perry leaves after the meeting, and I go and I said, "Hey, uh, L. Tom Perry wanted me to come talk to you." And the stake president, President Duncan, he said he gave me an envelope for you. It's sealed. I don't know what it is. It was thick, right? He asked me what this was about, and I said, "Well, I." I don't know. I, well, I no, I, I didn't know what it was, and I just said it was. It's a personal thing, you know, it's a personal matter. So I go and uh, I get the envelope and I go out and it is the copies of the letter that I had sent to them about my experience with Jesus Christ in God's holy of holies with the diagrams and the whole thing. And uh, it's just, it's just this, uh, you know, it's that, it's that stuff. There's a, <coughs> there's archive numbers on it. There's two different archives, archive numbers. And there's a bunch of stamps that say like Office of the First Presidency and all kinds of stuff like that. And uh, 
Well, Tom Perry knows who I am. Because part of that letter, letter, I talked about Jesus, about the Father telling me that I would be the last prophet before Jesus returns. So when I when I uh, told my stake president about, about that experience, he called me a bald-faced liar. And I said, call Thomas Monson. Call L. Tom Perry. They're both still alive at this time. Like, they discussed me in the Thursday council meeting in the temple. They all, Marion Russell, Marion whatever, Nelson, Dallin Oaks, who I've met face-to-face, like, these men know who I am. Okay, sorry, I'm at the 10 yard, which is a holding facility for the coal, and I think they're going to send us all here tonight because they don't want us driving around until like 2 in the morning. So we're probably going to be doing shorties, which really sucks because that means that uh, when I go up the Clutchapaw Road, I, I won't have service, so I'm, I'm just sitting here talking in the, the yard right now. Anyway, <coughs> oh, excuse me. So, um, so this state president calls me a bold-faced liar. And I'm telling him, hey, you can go talk to Al Tom Perry. He knows who I am. He he can corroborate this. I showed him the documents with the stamps on it, with the first presidency uh, archive numbers. There's two different archive numbers. There's a first presidency vault archive number and a general vault archive number. So it's not hard to find these documents if you know where to look and if you have permission to go there. But that stake president refused to investigate anything. He just said that I was a bald-faced liar and I was going to be excommunicated. I told him, hey, I I can't get home. I'm an over-the-road truck driver. I know I'm not going to be able to be home for this trial. He basically said, tough luck. It doesn't matter what you say. You don't need to be there. You're getting excommunicated. Like, he was angry that I dared share my experience with him and that I wouldn't sustain Thomas Monson as a prophecyer and revelator because I knew that he wasn't, because God told me he wasn't, that he was only a steward. So I said, look, I have never had a confirmation of the spirit that he is a, 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 a prophecyer and revelator but I'll sustain him as president of the church. I wasn't good enough for this this individual. <laughs> they wouldn't move the meeting so I could be there, and I wasn't there because I couldn't physically 
possibly get home in time because I was an over-the-road truck driver and I was trying to get home, but I wasn't able to get home. And I was very upset about that. And I was on my knees in my semi-truck. <clears throat> Actually, I was standing in the sleeper. And I was like, why is this happening to me? I'm, like, the, the most important thing in my life was being a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. That was the most important thing to me. To be with like-minded people. And I was getting excommunicated from the church. And I was I was crying and I was very upset. And the father spoke to me and he says, Kneel down before me and ask me who you are. And so I did. And when I kneeled down and I said, Father, who am I? I already knew the thing about the last prophet. I didn't understand the fullness of who I really am. I was taken up in the spirit immediately, and I had a vision open before me, and the, the Father is standing there next to me, and he says, look, and I looked, and there was this platform, and on the platform was a vision of the preexistence. It was God creator who is the father who was speaking to me at that time who was standing right next to me and we're looking at this vision of the past and he's standing in front of a throne they're standing up Jesus Christ is standing by his side at a throne about 15 feet from him I guess I don't know like it was there was three thrones they were all equally spaced And Jesus Christ is standing there, and on the other side of him is God the witness. Who had the same title as the bearer of light and truth, God the witness, or in Latin, Lucifer. In Hebrew, Hillel ben Shekhar. which means the same thing as the bearer of light and truth in Hebrew. Uh, Although Shakar, like that's who he became. So I was shown that he rebelled against the father and the son and he became Hasatan and he had his name stripped from him. So Lucifer became Satan and that, that title was given to another person. There was a war in heaven. I saw the war. I understand the war. I was also shown that there are 12 who stand in front of the Father, the Son, and the Witness 
who are called mighty and strong. And then I was told that I stood among they who were mighty and strong. And I was also told that the Father, the Son, and the Witness are also called mighty and strong, and that there are 15 who are mighty and strong for this earth under the direction of Yehovah, our Elohim, who is not Jesus Christ, by the way. Predicts Ether chapter 3 and early early uh, church uh, church teachings at, at Jesus and Jehovah, not the same person. I'm sorry that if that offends you, if you want, uh, you can ask me why I call him, and we'll, we can talk about that at a separate time. But anyway, so um, I'm standing there, and there is a rebellion led by God the Witness or Lucifer. And after the rebellion, after he had his name and title stripped from him, he became Hasatan, and about half of the quorum of mighty and strong ones went with him. They all, these, these individuals, they fell. That's, that's how Jesus Christ, or that's how, not Jesus Christ, that's how um, Lucifer is the son of the morning. He was a god. He's called a god. He is a god. For realsies, He had the position of God the witness. He wanted the position of God the redeemer. He felt that he had more right to rule and reign, and I've talked about that in the past as well. Because God God has shown me so much. So much. Hi, Dad, I guess. Um, This canine driving here is having a problem with her... Like the reader that it does on the scales up at Sasko, and she's wondering if one of you guys could fix it. So, anyway, I'm sorry, they're talking here at the 10 yards. So, anyway, um, after he was cast out, there were about half of us remaining in the quorum of muddy and strong ones. And the fa- I saw the father and the son walk down among us. And they walked to me, and they chose me to become the witness. To take the title and position that Lucifer lost when he became Satan. To become the evening star. So the Lord of the whole earth is considered the morning star. He comes in the noon of the history of the earth. That is Michael who became Adam. Adam took the name of God, the Eternal Father, to start this earth out. He was an exalted being with a wife who he brought here, whose name was Ashura. Satan has dragged that name through the mud because he is a wicked, evil man. The devil is a liar. He is a liar, and he has dragged her name through the mud because he wants to hurt the father, who is Michael, who became Adam. Now, Adam, Michael, and Ashura, who became the mother of all living for this earth, is Eve, the mother of all living, Hava in Hebrew. 
they came to this earth as celestial beings and they descended from a celestial level resurrection to a terrestrial level resurrection and then they had the veil placed over their minds and they they descended and they were translated beings basically they could not die Adam and Eve Hava and Michael 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 they are the father and mother of us both spirit, uh, physically and spiritually through the law of adoption. There's a whole big old progression of the gods things that I, I won't get into at this time. But on an older earth, Michael was the redeemer of that world that we lived on. We call that the pre-existence. We lived there on that physical earth. Before that earth, um, after that earth became a fire and sea and glass, we had the opportunity to put off our resurrected bodies completely and become spirits again in the pre-existence of that world. This is what is called multiple mortal probations. Joseph Smith alluded to these things in both the King Fuller Discourse and the lecture at the Grove, which was the last recorded sermon of Joseph Smith. Michael and Hava lived their lives as an Adam and an Eve on this world as our Heavenly Father and our Heavenly Mother, both in the spirit and in the flesh. And at the end of their assignment... At 999 and a half years from the time they went into the garden to the end of their assignment on this earth, they were taken up again into heaven as translated beings. The word in Hebrew that means that that can be translated as die also means to be translated. They were translated. They never tasted of death. There's so much more to things than, than people understand. And for some reason, when, when I try to teach the people these things, they say, well, we don't know that. Well, you might not know that, but guess who does? Me. I am the second witness of the Father. I am one mighty and strong I was chosen to be the witness, the second witness of the Father. And it is by the mouth of two or three witnesses that every word is established. Michael is the morning star. Jesus Christ is a son of the morning star. He's the bright morning star. He came in the noon or the meridian of time of the history of this earth and guess (coughs) he lost his his title and his position and it was given to another 
I hold that position of the witness. I am the evening star. I come at the end as an eyewitness, a, an apostle of the resurrected Father and Son, one greater than John the Baptist to prepare the way for the return of Jesus Christ and also for the redemption of Zion and for the return of the city of Enoch and Salem along with Father Adam. In Daniel chapter 7, when it says that one like unto the Son of Man comes down from the clouds, what Daniel was seeing was not Jesus. He was seeing one like the Son of Man, who is Jesus. One like him coming down from the clouds of Mount Vashel. Mount Zion, which is not on the earth at this time, but it will be placed back in its place, which is the Gulf of Mexico. When Daniel saw one like unto the Son of Man coming down from the clouds, he saw a vision of me as a resurrected being coming down, and I will be the first to be resurrected in, uh, in this time. So when I die, I only have to wait three and a half days until I'm resurrected, and then I'll be taken up for the whole world to see, along with the remnant who are on the earth, who have proper priesthood authority, both patriarchal and matriarchal. And when that happens, the priesthood no longer is on the earth. The destruction comes as a bunch of chaos. We are taken up. I take my position as a resurrected being next to the throne of God. And then in time, the city of Zion, the city of Enoch, the landmass that was in the position of the Gulf of Mexico, along with Mount Vashel, where the temple of God is that I stood in when I knelt before the Father, when I stood before the Father. It will be on the earth. And we will go to Adam and Diamond, to the Ancient of Days, and hold that council. And it has not happened yet. The devil is a liar, and his name is Phil Davis. Oh, the devil will tell you many, many interesting things. He will give you deep doctrine mixed with lies and key points of doctrine. And he's on right now. He's, he's talking right now. It's 8, 8.05 p.m. We're in overdrive. I actually enjoy Phil Davis, but he is a liar. The devil is a liar. He is a slick individual, very charismatic, very religious, well, he knows a lot of religion. He's not religious. He's a damned liar. Adam and has not happened yet. The fullness of the priesthood is not simply the Melchizedek priesthood. The church was rejected with their dead. But he twists 
things around. He gets you to believe that that you can get your answers by by thoughts in your head. So God speaks to your mind and to your mind, not to not it's not to your mind and to your heart, it's to your mind. Anyway, it's just a big mess, right? But Adam and Eve, Michael and Ashura, they are your heavenly mother and your heavenly father. And when they became the Adam and and the, the Hava or the Eve of this earth, upon themselves the name of God, the eternal mother, and God, the eternal father there is a progression of the gods there's a hierarchy there are many mysteries and you know what I know that a lot of you out there are going to reject this you you, you think this is all interesting this is all so interesting let me tell you something Isaiah 49, Isaiah sees the rejection of the Davidic servant by his people. But I still have to warn you, and I still have to teach you, and I still have to testify, and you can either accept it or reject it. But it's only the righteous remnant that will accept it. Anyway, so um sorry, the guys are talking here at the ten yard and it's distracting me. Um, Also, uh, in Joseph Smith history, I think it's verse 35, we're told that we're told that um, that 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 Isaiah chapter 11 is talking about the stem, the root, the rod, and the branch for Davidic servants was about to be fulfilled and that Acts chapter 3, 22 and 23, where it talks about the men like the Moses is Christ, but the day had not yet come when he would be rejected by his people. DNC 113, it talks about the stem, the root, the rod, and the branch. In DNC 113, verses 1 and 2, Joseph Smith is asking who the stem is. And Jesus says the stem is Christ. He doesn't say, I am the stem. He doesn't say, Jesus Christ is the stem. He simply gives the title of Christ, which in Greek means anointed, which in Aramaic is Messiah, and Hebrew is Mashiach. Jesus Christ had already been rejected by his people. Moroni was not speaking about how 
the man like unto Moses of Acts chapter 3, 22 and 23, or maybe it's 2, 20, whatever, that this man had not yet been rejected by his people because Messiah ben Joseph, who I am, at that time had not yet been rejected by his people. But Isaiah saw that that, that that time would happen. And it's happening now. And I am supposed to talk to you, deliver to you my witness, speak to you, teach you, educate you, prepare you for Zion's redemption, and you will reject me. Even those of you who know about the Davidic servant, even those of you who think that you're part of the remnant, God is allowing the devil to test you, to send many false prophets to testify to you many deep and true things mixed with lies so that you will be deceived because this is a time of sifting. And very few of you are going to pass the test. Wasn't it Heber C. Kimball or was it J. J. Golden Kimball? A test, a test, a test is coming and how few of you will stand. We are in the midst of that test and you are the ones being tested and how few of you will stand. And once again, nobody has called in. And so we'll end the program with some music. We'll come back on. We have two episodes left, one on on Wednesday and one on Friday. And we will be wrapping up this book on Friday. <coughs> Hopefully by then. And then we'll be going into a new book on Monday. Remember, the program goes Monday, Wednesday, and Friday from 6 p.m. until we're done. We're going to overdrive sometimes, like today. We're about 15 minutes into overdrive today. So, all right, well. I'm going to wrap this up. I hope that God does bless you and doesn't give you strong delusion for believing the lies, the lies of false doctrine that you accept. And we'll be back on uh, Wednesday at 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time with another episode of Zion's Redemption Radio Network at blogtalkradio.com forward slash fundamentally Mormon. Thank you for listening. Take care and goodbye. Mm-hmm.